my god, we are not starting off well. <laughs> I just feel like maybe introducing ourselves in the first episode since like we're new. Yeah, that's fine. We're brand new. What's important about us? <laughs> Nothing. I don't have anything important about me. Yeah. I'm just here. We're two friends who met in college and have a fondness of history. Yep. And we always found ourselves telling each other history stories. And, we and like then to, we said, let's make a podcast. <laughs> because we like to talk, laugh, and talk about, talk about history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. That's the intro. <laughs> Welcome to Hysterical History, where we sit down, talk about our favorite stories, and of course, laugh. Your hosts are Whitley Trussler and Emily Gummery. All right, let's get this show started. So, like, I feel like it's okay if you have questions throughout the story. Oh, I agree. Or if you have, like, anecdotes from other stories you've read from history where you'd be like, oh, that that's like that one time I read this, this, or this, or watched this on Hulu. Yeah. So, I think that's... Or fine. if we talk about, like, the bubonic plague and we're like, remember that one time we had three things of COVID? <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> uh, or we're in the third wave. I saw something Ooh. that was, like... COVID is like feminism. We don't know which wave we're in anymore. I, too. <laughs> I shared it because I was like, that's fair. Well, that's actually perfect to segue into my story. <laughs> okay. So I saw this tweet, which I think I shared with you, about Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, yeah. And they went on this flight in 1933 after they were at a White House dinner. They were both bored and they just got on Amelia's plane and went to Baltimore there and back. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, that seems like very gay. Like that seems like a queer story to me. So See, I, I, I read that and I thought, forget podcasting, let's get airplane licenses. So. <laughs> well, I didn't think that. So. <laughs> I even wrote that in my notes. I said, I thought, wow, this seems very queer. <laughs> and so, like, my next Google search was Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Roosevelt lovers. Was question like, mark. Question lovers mark. Question. Yeah, correct. So, I couldn't find much evidence that they were, but I did find more about this relationship between Eleanor and this other woman named Lorena Hickok. And okay. she goes by Hick. So, Eleanor was orphaned pretty young. So, her mother died... I think she, it said she was like 29 years old when she died. And Dang. basically she hated Eleanor was kind of the vibe I was getting. Like very emotionally unattached from Eleanor and like thought she wasn't good enough. And then her father died a few years later in a sanatorium. He was only 34. He was a severe alcoholic. But like he could do no wrong in Eleanor's eyes because he loved her unconditionally. So like... Already, Eleanor has this traumatic background, and then she goes to live with her grandma um, in New York. And Is that maternal or paternal? Maternal. So then she moves in with her grandma, who also has two alcoholic sons living at home. Their names are Valley and Eddie. The grandma was like, oh, I did such a terrible job with my kids, so I'm just going to be really super strict with Eleanor and her brothers. Oh, boy. And guess what? Eleanor loves her grandma like she loved her dad because... She felt unconditional love, even though it was a horrible environment. And actually, when she was like 14 or 15, they put three deadbolts on Eleanor's door at her grandma's house 
because they were afraid of certain types of abuse from her uncle, Valley. Okay, that took a turn. It did. So like this, this all makes kind of Eleanor very prone to depression. Like she's already got all this trauma. Right. And she's still very, I don't know. She still seems like a very happy, caring person, which is interesting, I think. But then the Roosevelt's are like, I don't know about these hall people. (laughs) Like, we're going to send you to London to school. So she goes to this school called Allenswood where she becomes this popular leader and she's a writer there. Then at Allenswood, Eleanor says, you know, looking back, she's 76 years old and the proudest moment of her life was when she made her field hockey team at Allenswood. And then Mm -hmm. I'm also like, okay, the evidence is mounting that Eleanor Roosevelt is 100% a lesbian. <laughs> like, we're already there. From field hockey. This field is where hockey. You're, you're, you're putting your stamp on it from field hockey. I'm just thinking about how much I love to be messy and muddy and dirty as a child. And that's Eleanor. I mean, I didn't mind it. <laughs> well, Emily, you might be a lesbian. <laughs> I even wrote my notes here, just like gay in all capitals. <laughs> <with that. laughs> I mean, that's like saying like women's rugby was like your defining moment as an adolescent teenage but girl. I mean, I'm not fighting you because <laughs> we love the gays. But what I'm saying is it could just be the fact that she and now granted, we're only like partway in your story, but it could just be the fact that she has not really had a good family structure like her mom died young, didn't really want anything to do with her. Mm -hmm. Her dad, though she loved him, at some point, according to your notes, entered a sanatorium. Yeah, and he actually died jumping out of a window from the sanatorium. And then he he had a seizure a few days later is what what done him in. Great. So there you go. Sorry, sidebar. No, you're fine. (laughs) That just adds to my point, actually. (laughs) And then you're saying that she goes and lives with her grandmother, who she loves, but, like, is very strict and is trying to casually just like save her from what I would assume is either he has pedophilia tendencies mm-hmm. or just cannot handle his alcohol because he's an alcoholic and drug addict, I'm sure. Um, so maybe that's just giving her like a good structure as well as making her feel like a part of a family and a team for the first time. Maybe that's why she's saying it's her defining moment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's actually a good point because I think that's where she gets her foundations from to become the leader that she is. Mm -hmm. I think those experiences strengthened her resolve. Um, Sorry, that's my cat, Derby, (laughs) meowing in the background. Uh, I just fed her, but she's apparently not happy. Um, But any, I disagree with what you're saying. Thank you, bye. (laughs) Yeah, she has a stake in this argument, apparently. She also disagrees with me making this assumption so early. She was also part of the women's rugby team. Correct, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, me making early conclusions, maybe it's not welcome because then she debuts in New York society, which is interesting because it kind of reminds me of the London, like, debutante, like, we've been reading a lot of 
Yeah, if you Bridgerton. haven't read or watched Bridgerton, this is not an ad. Just do it, please. Thanks. <laughs> yes, we're reading it together. I am almost <laughs> done. I think Emily finished them like a month ago. No, I'm waiting on the last book for you to oh, catch up. I'm not. I just finished. Yeah. It's in his kiss. So I'm. Oh. I'm ready for the next one. Okay. I think well, that's the last one. Let me know when you're one. close. And oh yeah, we'll I have, talk about it after this. They're yeah, not here for that. Yeah. Uh, we can maybe make I'm, a, another podcast the... about book reviews. Yeah, we could. <laughs> Um, but anyway, she debuts and she's kind of in this upper echelon of American society that's called the Swells. So it's kind of like, you know, she got sent to a school with a bunch of nobility and um, aristocratic families when she was in London and Allenswood. I just think that whole period of time is very interesting in the early 1900s. Agreed. Um, but then like she comes back from school, 1902, and she meets Franklin Delano Roosevelt who is her fifth cousin. I was going to say. They are cousins, but it's fifth, right? So. Whitley. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> but anyway, FDR's mother, uh, Sarah, she's like, mm, no. And uh, they're like, okay, but we're getting married anyway. So they get married in 1905 Ooh. on St. Patty's Day because that happens to be the time when Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy, is in town and he walks her down the aisle because, you know, her dad died in a sanatorium. So they end up living in Hyde Park, New York, um, in a home that was provided by FDR's mother, Sarah, who, like I just mentioned, was not a huge fan of Eleanor. Um, And actually, the house that she gave FDR and Eleanor after they got married was connected to hers by sliding doors. Oh, so she could just like come Mm-mm. in whenever she wanted. Mm-mm. That's great. Not for me. <laughs> Not for me. But that's also a time when that's kind of your ruling domain as a married woman is your home. But yeah. her mother-in-law is just taking control of it. And yeah, she's that's what like, we've learned in these Bridgerton. I mean, people can be like, oh, Bridgerton. But like, that's kind of what I'm learning about like. Because her books are somewhat factual in terms of like societal norms and like that's what young women were trained to do like you are being trained to run your house and your servants and like making sure things are like up to standard and also depending on the title you were accepting from the husband that you married also determined how you should act when running your home so that is very very surprising to me I think yeah I mean it seemed to me from what I was reading through that Eleanor didn't like the idea of being a wife and a mother, but like still annoying, you know, that like here comes your mother-in-law walking through the sliding doors that connect your townhomes. Like who the hell put this candle on this table right here? Like right on the side like that. Like <laughs> that's what she sounded like. They yeah. had recordings. Okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, she's living in this town home. They end up having six kids. And this is like the weirdest thing that I read in my research that Eleanor told her daughter, Anna, that she did not like having intercourse with FDR. If my mom said that to me, I'd shrivel up and die. Correct. (laughs) Anna passed away the next day. (laughs) R.I.P. Anna. She just wanted Anna to have the same level of childhood trauma that she did. Apparently. I don't know who would ever say that to someone, especially their child. Well, it gets even better because Eleanor also, this is like an actual Eleanor Roosevelt quote. Oh, no. That 
It did not come naturally for me to understand little children or to adore them. So, like, she hates being a wife and a mother. And, like, her kids later, I can't remember which one, goes on to publish a book, one of her sons, about, like, how sad and depressed she always was at home. And I'm like, oh, she kind of, like, became her mother because that was a situation with her mother. Like, her father treated her poorly. Not that FDR treated Eleanor poorly, but, like... Yeah, she was kind of prone to feel that way. Yeah, yeah. And I think she just didn't have that attachment with her children. Um, Yeah, I mean... Hmm. But anyways, I highlighted that as a red flag. Like, it's shocking that, one, she told her daughter that. Like, what? But the fact she felt that way. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Some more evidence. Did you write gay in all caps? No, I just wrote red flag in all caps. Okay, red flags. So, then in 1918, this is kind of a big turning point for Eleanor in her life, where FDR has an affair with Eleanor's... Social secretary. Stop it right yeah. now. Her name was Lucy Mercer. Mm-hmm. And Mm-mm. Eleanor, this sounds like it should be a movie. And if anybody's listening to this, like make this a movie right now. But also talk to us because we want to be involved. Yeah, exactly. Like, I want to be Eleanor Roosevelt in the movie. I'll be Lucy. That'll be fun. I'm going to be pissed at you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you won in many ways, sister. <laughs> Correct. I do not enjoy intercourse with him as I told my daughter <laughs> Anna. <laughs> this becomes her kind of big she has this big emotional kind of breakdown between 1918 and 1921 she really struggles with her mental health and pictures of her through this time she's pretty thin um she had issues with anorexia Mm. when going through these emotional issues um but it's also this really revolutionary time for her where she finds her liberation in a sense as well because she realizes that she can break out of that cast as wife and mother. Because she doesn't feel like she owes FDR anything anymore. After he had an affair with Lucy Mercer, her literal assistant. Her assistant. Not his assistant. Listen, I hear what you're saying. I just feel maybe. Now listen, I don't always stick up for these men out here running games. But maybe Anna's a big mouth. And told her dad what her mom said. And he said, I don't really have any ties to her anymore. I'm going to go out here, run these streets. What if he said to Anna, I also don't like intercourse with your mother. I think Anna (laughs) needs therapy. (laughs) That's what I think. But I'm just saying, maybe we don't know the whole story. That's fair. And Anna has a big mouth. Could. He did have an affair with somebody else as well that I read. I don't remember her name. FDR. <laughs> I'm trying to help you out, man. <laughs> and I'm not allowing that. Um, so then she, you know, after this period of time where she kind of struggles to figure out who she is as a person, she's in New York again and she meets these two women. So Esther Lape and Elizabeth Reed might be red. It's R-E-A-D. English is hard. Um, <coughs> But guess what? They're a lesbian couple. <laughs> oh. Okay. From being a lesbian. What? This I is know. news to me. <laughs> Everybody, this is my coming out moment. To em- no. <laughs> Before Just this, it was the closet. Now here we are. <laughs> this podcast is really world. opening <laughs> doors for me. No, actually, I came out to Emily in a very weird way where I just said really quickly, 
okay, I'm going downstairs to see my girlfriend. Bye. And, and they're like, wait a minute. Speechless in my dorm room. <laughs> Correct. Not because she was gay, but because it was very abrupt. We were in the middle of a conversation and she just left. Yeah, I and, did. And not only that, but left your stuff to where I had to figure out which room <laughs> you were in to give it back to you. Uh, and here we are. <laughs> so not only was I in a relationship you didn't know about, but it was with a woman and I left all of my stuff in your room. And it was in the freaking building I lived in. It was in your building, (laughs) correct. (laughs) But anyways, I'm just like, from being a queer individual, I have realized throughout my life that we all kind of flock together unknowingly. Like, Mm. there's just kind of this underlying sense that you know that you're similar to a person. And I think that can happen with any group. To me, this is, you know reading as like she's finding people who are similar to her mm-hmm. who are strong women and willing to live outside the confines of society mm-hmm. i'm just the only reason i'm laughing is because all you've said so far is she met them <laughs> that's <laughs> all the that street <laughs> that's all that happened and now you're like and they flock together and it's beautiful <laughs> they haven't done anything else but said hey girl and left correct <laughs> But anyway, she gets involved in the women's movement with these people. <laughs> <laughs> but then her Katie grandma. McDaniel has turned this off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Sorry, Dr. McDaniel. <laughs> she is, she's like, these two did not take my class and listen correctly. <laughs> I did pretty well on my essays, I, I think. I think I did too, but now I'm like, maybe I didn't. <laughs> She just gave us, you know, our grades and got yeah, us out of she there. was like, whatever gets them out of my class. Thank you, next. <laughs> <laughs> During this time, like, she's re- she's discovering herself. Her grandma Hall dies. So. Oh, okay. And who's kind of like a mother figure in her life. Yeah. And I actually don't even know why that note is in there. Uh, oh, because it motivates Eleanor. And she's like, wow, like, my grandmother was such a beautiful painter. She could have been a painter. She could have been anything she wanted. Mm. But she was just a wife. So Eleanor was like, I don't want to look back on my life and say I was just a wife. I was just a mother. Which kind of goes into like how female mother figure like thinking has evolved. Because now so many people are so many things. They're a wife. They're a mother. They are vice president now. There's like not to make it political, but I'm just saying like you can do so much and be a wife and mother. Yeah. And at the time they thought you're a wife and mother or you're a spinster and nobody wants anything to do with you. And that's the end. Yeah. And it just like shows how much we have. I mean, we have so much more to go, but it's, it is a, a beautiful way to talk about how far we've come. Yeah, I mean, think about the tension that she felt where she's like, wow, I have to decide whether I'm going to be a loyal wife to my politician husband and Mm -hmm. a great mother to my six kids, which she admitted she didn't want to do. So I actually don't know if it was that much of a hard (laughs) choice. Um, And then like, or do I want to be this liberated free woman Mm -hmm. who uses my voice? And she kind of does, in a sense, like meld those together. But at the same time, like you mentioned... It wasn't, I mean, that wasn't the norm. Mm-mm. So it was a difficult time, um, I'm sure, for her. And, you know, all the stuff that's going on at, at this time for her with her grandmother and the affair, it, it's probably really hard. 
but it actually might make it easier in a sense for her to make that decision to be a free liberated woman probably she's really kind of building this circle of female leaders around her and they're like it sounds so fun i'm like if I would join this group for sure, like live in Greenwich Village and they recite poetry and they have like champagne dinners over candlelight. Okay. I like throw my husband in the garbage. (laughs) I'm coming to your house. So she really starts to take on her own political identity separate from her husband's, which is interesting because he's already a politician. And then she kind of starts to grow this political standpoint of her own. And then Another lesbian couple tiptoes their way in Eleanor's life. Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman. Are you pointing at me because they're important names? No, but I have more information <laughs> on them than the other lesbian couple. Oh, so there's more more than like walk by this time. <laughs> Correct, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so in 1927, they actually buy a school with Eleanor called the Todd Hunter School for Girls. Mm. Um, so Eleanor now owns this school with Nancy and Marion. So um, a woman who does not like children has now bought a place she has where obtained children a school, go. But it's a different <laughs> relationship with the children, right? Because she's now teaching. It's a finishing school, so I think that means they're older. That would make sense. Like they, the, This is probably where they learn like how to run a house. Yeah, we'll Google that, and if we're wrong, we'll delete this part of the or, podcast. Or peop- we can leave it, and people can just yell at us. That's fine. On Twitter. That's fine. Because that seems like what podcasts drag me. do. So drag Drag us. me through the mud. Cancel us now. <laughs> please, Actually, please don't. <laughs> we would like at least a couple more episodes. <laughs> like, wait till the fourth episode to cancel yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, give us at least a couple. Damn. They actually even offer college prep courses at this school for girls. Oh. And Eleanor taught American literature and history, and through that she emphasized... Um, independent thought, current events, and social engagement. So this is kind of groundbreaking stuff that these girls are now getting to learn from these two for sure lesbians and (laughs) this third evidence is mounting lesbian Eleanor Roosevelt. Everyone is keeping a tally and they're like, Whitley, there's not that much evidence, but okay. It's like like maybe a molehill. I don't know about a mountain. I feel it in my heart. I'm going to read you some transcripts from a lover's letter Oh, later. I'm ready for this mountain to build. I just feel right now I'm on like the... Like, okay, I was listen, grasping... I would love for her to turn out to be a lesbian at the end of this. I'm rooting for her and her pride flag. But what I'm saying is currently my critical thinking is like, maybe this is like a molehill. <laughs> like- <laughs> I am grasping at straws, but... <laughs> <laughs> for dear life, like knuckling, yeah. like... <laughs> Hanging on for dear life to, to this Jesus, idea. take this wheel right now. <laughs> and guide me to the real evidence, which is coming. <laughs> so, also, okay, so I definitely have a lot more information on Nancy and Marion. Like, they're legit here. Okay. Um, and they were a couple together. Like, an out lesbian couple together. Okay. So, they establish Valkill Industries as well with uh, Eleanor and this is a place that provides supplemental income for local farming families, um, which is really interesting because this this kind of p- pays the way for some of the New Deal initiatives that happened down the road with FDR. So again, like Eleanor here is really, really taking a step towards establishing her own political identity, right? Which is pretty mm-hmm. amazing in the twenties. 
that she's mm-hmm. doing this. And then we're getting to the mountain. In 1928, guess who enters the picture? Amelia Earhart. No. <laughs> okay. That's actually later. Oh. In, oh, I mean, I guess the, that would make sense. I think 1933. He was the president at the time you yeah. said that. So, yeah. yeah. We have Lorena Hickok, Hick, enters the scene. She's a female journalist. She's writing about sports news and politics. So again, like another powerful woman who is outside the normal bounds of society. Like women who are journalists at this time are reporting like on gossip columns in society. Oh, yeah. Like they're not reporting sports and political. Like they are journalists, which so that's not groundbreaking. Yeah, they're just not on the front. Like they're not getting any front, front page stuff. Right. Yeah. And this is a person Hick had. I, I mean, she was the first female byline to be featured like. In the New York Times. Mm. So, like, she has her Snaps own story her. published in the New York Times, like, under her name. Like, this is a big accomplishment. And it's not, like, a gossip column or a society well, column. It's, like, real news. And also, I think a, a good thing to point out, too, is you're saying that it was under her name. A lot of women did get published, but they always had to do it under, like, a pseudonym or, mm-hmm. or um, writing name. And it would always be a male name. And that's the only way. So that's that's really a, an awesome thing that she got that. Yeah. So, I mean, Hick is just, I mean, at the time, too, she openly dates women. Like, she's pretty progressive. Like, mm. even today, like, I'm like, oh, okay. Like, she's pretty progressive, right? She's like... Invite her to the Cadet Kelly cookout. Yeah, we had a Cadet Kelly Memorial Day bash, and it was hilarious and awesome. And if you haven't watched it, look for the gay undertones in that movie. If you have watched it, even watch it again. We're not um, pushing the gay agenda. We just think it's No, fun. I just think Hilary Duff and Christy Carlson Romano are, like, hot for each other in that movie. <laughs> for sure. Right? I'm sweating now, okay? <laughs> this is me grasping for straws in a Disney movie from the 2000s. Don't ruin it for the children, okay? <laughs> they need to learn that. Oh my God. Okay, next. <laughs> so... 1928, Hick first kind of becomes aware of Eleanor, but she kind of avoids her because she doesn't want to get stuck to only reporting on the lives of the wives of politicians, because that kind of puts her back in that female sphere. Mm -hmm. 1932, Eleanor emerges as his top political advisor for FDR, so Mm. aka she's more than just the wife now, like, and he realizes it too, that she is valuable and a valuable asset to his career. I wonder too if, like, he said okay right off the rip or if there was a lot of like basically her being like i'm valuable and here's why and like badgering like badgering but not badgering him about it or if he was like yeah you're valuable join my team like i'm just curious at like what their home life was like with everything else going on and how she how he was just that's embarrassing (laughs) Um, how she was just like yeah this is the job for me and he was like yeah okay she kind of notices Eleanor Hick does, and she notices that she is kind of becoming this political figure in her own right. And she suggests that somebody gets assigned to covering her full time. And actually, she wasn't the assigned writer. It was somebody named KBB. But she actually still, despite not being the journalist who's exclusively covering <clears throat> her, she sat down with Eleanor for an interview and their friendship just sparked. So... So much so that she got a letter from her editor that said, don't get too close to your sources. Hot and happy, right? 
We're still a molehill at this point. But I we, mean, you might be swaying me to more than a molehill. We'll see what happens I'm going to get there when next. I read excerpts. Hick and Eleanor get closer, so they're both in New York, and Hick starts riding around with Eleanor in her private car. They have one-on-one breakfast in Eleanor's hotel room, like, alone, right? Okay. Okay. So we're getting there. You're getting I told me you now. there's more evidence. This is better than just meeting on the street. Yeah. She didn't, like, tiptoe past the couple of lesbians, and she's like, wait a minute. I am a lesbian. Like, this is... We're getting to the proof here. Okay. The proof is in the pudding. The lesbian pudding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So, in 1933, uh, Eleanor reluctantly learns that she's going to be first lady so after winning um you know there's that period of time when you win the election before you're inaugurated Mm -hmm. and eleanor and hick are both living in new york and they're spending a lot of time together so they're going to like concerts every night they're going to plays Mm -hmm. they're going to late candlelit dinners oh and people talking there are some rumors oh okay so like they even would have dinner in Hicks's one-room apartment in Midtown, they would have a special dinner. They would have a steak dinner together every once in a while. Ooh. So, like, they're clearly more than your average gal pals at this point. Yeah, I mean, we don't get steak at all. You, now I'm wondering we if we're even friends. We don't have steak, for sure. And we also don't have steak when it's 1934 in the Great Depression. This could be a Marie Antoinette situation where they're like, let them eat cake. And they're like, we're going to eat steak. <laughs> let you them guys eat can steak. Starve. Let's talk about Hick for a moment and how she grew up and what her upbringing was like. Because she's a pretty formidable woman in her own right. She's not just Eleanor Roosevelt's maybe secret lover. At this point, maybe. I think I'm going to convince you all at the end that yes, in fact, yeah. she is. Well, let's talk about her because so, I don't know who this lady is. Perfect. Well... She grew up in poor rural Wisconsin. Her mother died at 14 and she left home. And then Hicks and Ella helped her finish high school. She tried to go to college, but it just didn't work out. She ended up dropping out and she gets a job writing as a journalist. And at this point, she's just covering, you know, the usual women's topics, society gossip pages. But she's eventually discovered by an editor in Minneapolis. And this is where she starts to get her first political stories. And actually, when she's at the Minneapolis Tribune, she becomes the paper's chief reporter. So she's actually, like, getting pretty elevated here. And she starts covering sports and politics. um, And she's actually one of the first female writers to be assigned to sports. Awesome. So she's she's a pretty big female pioneer. Yeah. She becomes this great reporter. And actually, in 1923, she wins an award from the Associated Press for writing the best feature of the month, it was a piece on President Harding's funeral train. Mm. So, like, she's already getting recognition pretty early on when she's still working in Minneapolis. Um, she she was It's reported that she was an out lesbian, and everybody knew this. But she okay. lived with a society reporter named Ella Morse, with whom she had an eight-year relationship. So that's a, that's a pretty long relationship to have. And to um, still have, like, for both of you to still have a career. Yeah, and... When I read that, I thought of them as like, oh, these are like your your gay aunts who are roommates for life, you know? That's the kind of vibe I got. Because they're just like two people who met at work and they live together. Yeah. And like, you know for a fact their family were like, oh, they're just best friends. Yeah. 
I mean, this still happens <laughs> to me today, and it's the it's 2020s. That's what I tell so, everybody about you. Oh, that's just her friend. Yeah, well, one time my family actually thought that both you and Maggie were my girlfriends when you oh, both yeah, came to the family came cookout. To the, yes, I the remember that. Roast, that was so mm-hmm. awkward. They asked me when you both walked away, and I was like... We should have just said yes. I should have. Because <laughs> then they would have been... They would not have known what to do. No. I, sh- I should have said that just to see. My grandma asked me if I was gay once because I said I was going to go to Pride, the Pride Festival with you, so... And then Hick is diagnosed with diabetes in 1926, and... Ella Morse convinces her, you need to go to San Francisco for some healing time. Barely into this new, like, we moved out here, like, for you, like, you're going to get better. Guess what Ella does? Leaves her. Yes. She elopes with an ex-boyfriend. What? Yeah. Write this in the gossip column. Yeah. So, like, Hick is like... I can't show my face in Minneapolis ever again. This is so embarrassing. Well, yeah. And like, where'd the boyfriend come? Like, she was definitely seeing him on the side. And by seeing, I mean writing him letters. Probably. I don't know. Because you don't just like move somewhere with someone and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm married with my ex. Yeah. I I don't know. The, I I want to know the full details of the situation because it's, it's really weird that she's like, I'm going to convince you to go to San Francisco, but then guess what? I'm going to leave you for my ex-boyfriend. Do I'm wondering. I think it was to get her out of Minneapolis to then not, so she could stay there with the now husband and it not be like a stir. Maybe. I don't know. Hmm. I don't, that's interesting. I would like to know more. Yes. But this actually prompts hick to move to new york so she starts a job at the uh new york daily mirror so this is where she kind of this is important in the story because this is what shifts her out of minneapolis and she meets eleanor in new york so like without this i wouldn't have this mountain of evidence that is coming for you i mean i guess we can say we like ella for this this and this only yeah, well, but she can. She still she can a, go hit bricks. She's a zero out of ten in my book for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, but she eventually in 1928 starts at the Associated Press and starts really getting big stories. So she's covering things like the sinking of the SS Vestris, um, which mm. doesn't really mean anything to me, but I'm sure it's a big deal in that time. Like this big ship sank, and then. It, that was the one that I mentioned earlier was published in the New York Times as her own byline, which is a pretty big deal um, because it's the first female byline to appear in the New York Times. Right. So she's really, she establishes herself as the best known female reporter in the U.S. by 1932. So she's... Take that, Ella. Stay in, stay in Minneapolis. We don't care. Zero out of ten. Mm-hmm. Would not recommend. <laughs> so after that segue... Um, just wanted to tell everybody a little bit more about Hick, just because I think she is just a cool individual I to think know so about. So far, we stand Hick. Yeah, correct. We do not stand Ella, no. but we stand Hick. Stan we Hick. stand Eleanor, not Ella. Just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with you. So, <laughs> this podcast is not over. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Emily's canceling me. So we're now back in 1932. And they're together in New York having steak dinners at Hicks' apartment in Midtown. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And she gives Eleanor a sapphire ring, <gasps> which Eleanor wears at the inauguration. So Eleanor like loves this ring. On her ring finger? I don't know about that. That'd be great evidence, though. I should have looked that up. You should have. 
after a sapphire ring though not to interrupt you but that is pretty big deal yeah you don't give me sapphires in our friendship no i don't even make you steak Mm -mm. i guess we're just not you did make me hamburgers though so that was good (laughs) close second to a nice hearty steak i mean it's still beef i think it was turkey Oh no, it was it was a Beyond Burger. It was a Beyond Burger. (laughs) Not an ad, but definitely a hundred out of ten recommend. It's pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Now Eleanor has to leave New York because she has to go take up residence in the White House Mm. with FDR. So they start this long distance relationship, and here is where it gets interesting. That's hard for anybody. Yeah, I know. And especially in the nineteen 30s when you're I'm like sure. trying to be secretive in 1978 actually i know we're jumping really far ahead 18 boxes of letters were uncovered at the fdr library that were exchanged between eleanor and hick over the course of 30 years you said 18 boxes 18 boxes containing 4,000 letters oh my and that's God. not even the full collection because apparently Hick burned some of them. The more raunchy ones. Oh. So now maybe she's like a nine out of ten. How are you gonna burn the raunchy ones? I don't know. Cause we all at this point, I think we can start to agree. We know what's going on here, right? Like there a lot made of the mountain. It's debated by historians. They're like, this is not like a romantic, intimate relationship. And I'm like, they wrote 4,000 letters. What do you mean? I just want to read a couple of these. Um, Oh, okay. So this one is from Eleanor to Lorena Hick on March 9th, 1933. So this would have been, yeah, this would have been shortly after she moved. My pictures are nearly all up and I have you in my sitting room where I can look at you most of my waking hours. I can't kiss you. So I kiss your picture. Good night and good morning. (laughs) That's, this is that's the evidence Mount we've been waiting Everest, for. Mount Kilimanjaro. You have made the mountain. Here's another one from Eleanor to Lorena Hick again, March 11th, 1933. Oh, how I wanted to put my arms around you in reality instead of in spirit. I went and kissed your photograph instead, mm. and tears ran my eyes. Please keep most of your heart in Washington as long as I'm here. For most of mine is with you. <sighs> My heart is pitter-pattering. Pitter-patter. And then this one from November 17th, 1933, skipping ahead later that year, again from Eleanor to Hick. I'm getting so hungry to see you. <gasps> that sounds a little lusty to me. Yeah. Like, I I feel like we should not be reading these. <laughs> so I, I know. <laughs> and then there's also... So are there any... Not to interrupt because I don't know what you have planned, but are there any from Hick to Eleanor? There are, but I wanted to read you this one from November 27th, 1933, also from Eleanor, because you asked about gossip earlier. And she said, dear one, and so you think they gossip about us? Well, they must at least think we stand separation rather well. I am always so much more optimistic than you are, I suppose because I care so little what they, in quotation marks, say. So this is from Eleanor. Yeah, she's Who's now first lady. Like, I don't give a shit about what yeah, they're saying. Like, right. I love you, basically. Yeah. So, like, this is somebody who's in a high position in the United States currently, first lady. And she's like, well, I don't care. Screw them. Well, I mean, 
I think we also have to remember like where we started this story. Like she did not have a good connection with a lot of people in her life. She obviously for this reason or others did not have a good connection with her husband and her children. Yeah. So, I mean, she found someone, whether they're gay or not, she still found someone that she could like share life experiences with. And now they're separated. Yeah. So, like, of course she's going to be like, F all of you. I'm still going to do what I'm going to do because, like, I found a kindred spirit that is making my life enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, she kind of, when that whole affair happened, I think she kind of washed her hands of FDR a little bit. I mean, they're still a powerful political relationship. Mm -hmm. And that kind of seems to be all they are after that. Well, I mean, you um, still have to play your part. It's yeah, 1930s. exactly. You still have to play your part as the wife. Like, And actually, they were going to get... I didn't mention this. They were going to get divorced after that, actually. Uh, Eleanor was like, let's get a divorce. And um, Sarah, the mother-in-law who had the sliding door that connected their mm-hmm. houses, was like, FDR, if you divorce, publicly divorce Eleanor, you're getting cut off from funds. Like, no family funds for you. So then they didn't get divorced. Sarah, Sarah and Ella can go to She's Minneapolis. <laughs> zero out of ten. Yeah, correct. Oh, God. <laughs> but here you asked about a letter from Hick to Eleanor. Yes. This one is December 5th, 1933. This one's pretty saucy. Ooh, we love a good sauce. So this one reads, only eight more days. 24 hours from now, it will only be seven more. Just a week. I've been trying today to bring back your face, to remember just how you look. Funny how even the dearest face will fade away in time. Most clearly, I remember your eyes with a kind of teasing smile in them, and the feeling of that soft spot just northeast of the corner of your mouth against my lips. I wonder what we'll do when we meet, what we'll say. Well, I'm rather proud of us, aren't you? I think we've done rather well. My ears are red, for real. Like, they are hot. I mean... She's pretty familiar with the anatomy of Eleanor's face. I mean, I love you. I'm not kissing your mouth or your face. Oh, God, no. So, like... Those are those are just a few. Um, dangity dang dang. They, and there are a lot. I mean, obviously, there are 4,000 letters. And, like, I mean, there's this robust collection of evidence, which is funny to me that historians are still... There are some historians who are like, that's not true. Like, Eleanor was not a lesbian. She was not queer. And actually... To their credit, she might not be lesbian. She might be bisexual, some other kind of queer identity that, like, may not have been identified during that time. And, like, she obviously didn't come straight out and say it herself that that's her identity. So maybe she wasn't queer at all, and it just happened to be these are the circumstances she found herself in at the time. Yeah, it could be any of those options, but I'll tell you what, I am here for it. Me too. I'm loving it. Netflix, if you're listening, make this a series. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yes, please. I would watch it. Netflix is not listening to this, but we can dream. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so then Hick encourages Eleanor to start a newspaper column called My Day and to also hold weekly press conferences where only female reporters come in and get to ask questions about politics in the U.S. So that's that's pretty groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. But, but what does Eleanor do? She's like, Hick, you should quit your job at Associated Press. To do what? I'm like, okay, now wait a minute, Eleanor. <laughs> what is she going to do? 
But she quits in June 1933, which she builds her whole identity oh. around <laughs> journalism. No. So you're thinking of this over a course of like one, maybe two years. Like this is the definition of U-Haul lesbians. <laughs> like, come I on. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. Look how fast this happened. So, okay. So Eleanor actually gets her a job, which I'll tell you. But so, was that the idea to begin with? I don't know. Because I really feel like... You're basing this decision on the fact that you live in Washington at the time. You don't know if you're getting a second term. So then what is she supposed to do then? So Follow you around the country? <laughs> so the first thing they do after she quits her job, they go on a month-long vacation. Of course together. they do. Again, U-Haul. Clear as day. They're getting married. For sure. <laughs> and then... When she when they return, Eleanor lines up a new job for Hick as the chief investigator for the Federal Emergency Relief Administration. So she goes from reporter to an investigator, which is you know I guess it's kind of on the same lines. What is that lines. for? Like what is that? So we're in the depression now, and what her job ends up being is she travels around the U.S. Mm-hmm. to pretty much just fact find what's going on with the relief efforts and she gets told by harry hopkins who's in charge of Mm -hmm. this administration you know i don't want some fancy social work language telling me i want like a real view of what is going on in america and i want you to like put it straightforward which i feel like is how everybody should be yeah and it's crazy because she goes around the country reporting in a car that's named Bluette. Guess who bought it for her? Eleanor bought her a car. Um, mm, sounds like a mistress now. <laughs> yes. And so she heads off on this fact-finding mission, and she reports the reality of the conditions in their true form. It's not sugar-coated. And her conclusion essentially is that, which is pretty profound, the Depression didn't plunge a prosperous nation into poverty. It was already there. Old poverty already existed for the non-white population, rural population, elderly. They were already in poverty. And her conclusion was that depression just made their struggle worse. It didn't create it. Which is kind of groundbreaking because everybody has this view like, oh, America. Like, that's when America was like in its golden age. It's not. Mm -mm. It's never been there. So you have Hick getting busier with this new job. And she's actually living in the White House. She lives in the White House. Of course she is. Yeah, of course. Eleanor was also getting busier as First Lady. I mean, this is a pretty difficult time in American history. You've got the Depression. Then you've also got the Dust Bowl going on in the 30s. And then you've also got Hitler kind of, you know, getting his inkling of power starting in 33 and, like, rising up the ranks. And, like, you know, they probably could sense that something big was brewing, right? Oh, you my Hitler? Yeah. Oh, you said was his. And I was like... What? I didn't say Hitler. No, you did not. You said, you know, his power. <laughs> I was like, I hope we're talking about Hitler because who else? Is, like, what? Do we, this is a whole nother FDR. show. Like, <laughs> Sorry. This is a whole, like, this is like three episodes in one. I got so in my head about it. Got in my head about it. I, I was like. What? I didn't obviously, say Hitler. <laughs> capital H-E is no longer God. It is capital H-I-T-L-E-R. <laughs> Oh, my God. (laughs) But anyways, they're both getting really busy, and Hick starts to get jealous, and she wants more alone time with Eleanor, and Eleanor's like, I don't have more time to give. Oh. So, 
they start growing apart in the years that follow. This is like... Which is ridiculous because Eleanor's like, quit your job. And then they start like drifting apart. That's what you tell a mistress. She literally made her a mistress. Yeah, she kind of did. You're right. And then turned around and said, oh my God. Girl, I don't have time for you. Eleanor pulled an Ella. Yes. Eleanor pulled an Ella. So... Really? (laughs) (laughs) Eleanor... Listen, she's done a lot of good things, but she's not looking so hot in this light right now. They just don't have time for each other, and they really start to grow apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to also, like, to end the podcast episode of Eleanor Roosevelt is definitely queer. And I hope that you've gotten there with me. That like, I mean, I have. I don't know if our audience has. For but... sure, she's got some queer identity going on. Like, she's got a... It's there. If you want to fight in the comments, please keep it respectful. And if you want to fight with me, my address is... <laughs> White House, Washington, D.C. Yeah, White House, Washington, D.C. <laughs> Just kidding. Do not touch Joe Biden. So this is the last one I'm going to end on. This is from Eleanor again, and this is actually in 1955. Pick, dearest. Of course you will forget the sad times at the end and eventually think only of the pleasant memories. Life is like that, with ends that have to be forgotten. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of Gummy and Jean's Hysterical History. You can follow us on Instagram at G&J History Pod, or you can like our page on Facebook. Music was created and produced by me, Whitley Tressler, and everything else was created by both Emily and I, uh, sponsored by absolutely nobody. We'll catch you on the next episode.